Welcome to the Loveland Libcast, the official podcast of the Loveland Public Library. Welcome to the Loveland Libcast. We are back after a short hiatus, freezing and grieving the loss of Ashley as our podcast co-host, but we have a wonderful new contributor, Bryn. She is a teen librarian, and she's going to be joining me for the cookbook group as long as she can stand to be chatting with me about food. Bryn, welcome. Thank you. (laughs) How long have you been in Loveland? How long have you been at the library? Can you just introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. I've been in Loveland for 11 years and my relationship with the library started out as a patron, but then I began volunteering maybe six years ago. Did that for a year and then I was a materials handler shelving books for a little under a year. And then I joined our on-call team, so worked in all divisions um, of the library for three years, and then joined the teen division specifically this uh, last May. So you've pretty much worked in every many roles in the library. Yeah, it's a good place. I'm very grateful to work here. Yeah. So I asked Bryn to join me as a co-host on this cookbook group podcast because I know that you like cooking. I know that you like cookbooks. Can you tell me a little bit about your personal history with cooking? And I think you're specifically interested in cookbooks a little bit, right? I do. Well, I like the inspiration that comes from cookbooks. And they're also sort of my my book that I go to when I want to relax because food is always joyful and there's never anything stressful about reading about food. So I always leave the library with a piles of cookbooks. <laughs> Even if you're not going to make something out of it, yes. you like to, that's funny. Yeah. Since doing this and since working at the library, I've noticed a lot of people just browse cookbooks with zero intention of making the things. I mean, maybe they have some intention, but they are browsing at the library and then leaving it there. So they're not making the recipes right then and there, I know. And I never thought about that. And since working on this cookbook group and reading so many cookbooks, they are themselves such an interesting art form and literary form not just as like a means to an end. Very true, because they are visually interesting, right? And um, both with fonts and format, but also photographs or whether it's paintings that people use to bring their food to life. Have you always been interested in cooking? Yeah, I think so. My dad was the the big cook growing up, and he didn't do the day-to-day cooking, but every weekend he would spend hours you know, making his favorite dishes, masterpieces that took hours and hours to make. And so I think he instilled a real love of food in me. And then I've just always been inclined towards from scratch cooking. And so as a result of that, you spend a lot of time in the kitchen. And I'm particularly interested in kind of the heritage dishes Mm -hmm. from different cuisines. Mm -hmm. And so figuring out how to make the the types of foods that people have been cooking for centuries, you know, and centuries and centuries. And uh, and so just feeling a connection both to history, but also to place through food. Yeah. Yeah. And when you say from scratch cooking, I have a few thoughts, but what what do you mean when you say that? Well, I guess like for me, that would mean that 
when when I make bread, um, it's with flour and water and sourdough starter. Or instead of buying canned tomatoes, I would prefer to buy fresh or I'd freeze some of my own tomatoes. I'm also a big gardener, so we ha have a lot of the ingredients that we cook with that we grow ourselves. So it's kind of getting back to our, our roots in terms of cooking um, less prepared foods. Yeah. I, I grew up in a household that was very not like that. We were not, my parents like didn't really cook. And in this journey toward trying to live a little bit more intentionally, just in general, in all aspects of my life, can I make that version of something? Can I sow that? Can I repair that? Can I grow that? Cooking has been a way into that world for me that I wasn't really part of that world until my adulthood, I guess. Yeah. And I think also it brings you closer to the ingredients. And when you get closer to the ingredients, you get closer to the land mm -hmm. and the place that the ingredients come from. And so, you know, I guess food is just a way to connect with people and the natural world, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah your comment about looking at food as a way to understand other cultures and understand our own kind of history as humans and our history as humans on this planet and with cohabitation with other plants and animals leads pretty wonderfully into the book that we're talking about this month, which is The Walks of Life by the Luong family, Bill, Judy, Sarah, and Caitlin. And we'll talk a little bit about how they co-wrote this book. But it really is, they call it their cultural genealogy. It started as a blog and is still a blog. In 2012, the oldest daughter, Sarah, who was graduating college, and she couldn't find a job right out of college. And her mom told her that if no one will hire her, she should hire herself. And so that birthed this blog, which is the same title as the book, The Walks of Life. And that started in 2013. And it only became a book, I guess, about nine years later, 2022 is when um, The Walks of Life, they published some of their recipes and stories into a book. What did you think of the book, Bryn? I thought their story was inspiring and, you know, tender. I think they were vulnerable in the book, both in the joy that came from working together, but also the tension. And so there was a real honesty to their work and just, you know, the dynamic personalities that are a part of any group of people, but in particular a family. And two, I think some of the work that they were doing on the, their blog came over COVID and just the tensions that existed then. And the family was separated by oceans, you know, and um, and so just the the challenge of that. Yeah, so it was exciting, and and I I guess I just, in some ways, I felt this tinge of envy for the intactness of their of their cultural heritage. That's certainly a, a unique part of being American for many people, not all. My family certainly doesn't have like a clear lineage to any singular place. And the places that we do know that we're from, those, those sort of ties have been, for the most part, severed. You know, it's beautiful that they're able to do that. I like to think of America in its best sense of itself, really being a place where many cultures has space to flourish yeah. here. Yeah. Do you find that you're longing for some of those cultural traditions in your, in your family that have been lost to time? You know, that's interesting. I think 
My dad didn't have a lot that went back to his family, but we do have one particular meal that maybe I'll touch on another yeah. on another podcast. But he he traveled a lot as a young adult, and so he brought a lot of passion for the places that he visited. And so I think I was influenced by that. But I did spend, I think there there is a bit of a longing mm -hmm. for something that you can't necessarily retrieve. But what's really come to be for me is really being more place-based. And like I said, a lot of that comes from having a more intimate relationship with the ingredients, not just as foods, but as living plants and as living animals and, and knowing my surroundings really well. And ultimately, you know, our heritage and our relationship with where we are now is really all about place. When I read this cookbook, there's a lot of ingredients in here that would be really difficult for us to find because they are very place-based and culturally based. Then there's also the fun of gardening because things that don't know that you can't find in stores that you can figure out how to grow here. And, uh, you know, that's fun too, that there's a, there's a way that the garden can sometimes can connect us to different, different cultures. Do you think that your family, your immediate family, your children share this same interest that you have in food as a way to understand place? I like to think so. Um, they wish we ate a lot more hamburgers. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, so I have three sons. Mm -hmm. And my eldest is in college, so he's a sophomore this year. And he's now living in an apartment with friends. And he is so excited about cooking. And so it's really great to see his enthusiasm and um he, he cooks like me, he gets inspiration from recipes and then just kind of takes off with it. So I see that in him and I see him thinking of food as something that connects people. Yeah, I, I think that they probably also have memories of me like kind of harping on the quality of ingredients or the ethics of eating mm -hmm. this or that. And those may not always be positive memories <laughs> <laughs> in all fairness. But, you know, I think it all percolates and I respect both their independence and and also I'm, I'm sort of a stickler for what we cook with and how we cook when we're at home. I guess I sort of asked that question because I'm thinking about your understanding of ingredients as not a replacement, but as another way to understand heritage in a way. And that places may be a more appropriate way for you now to feel a long connection to peoples and previous to you, which I think in this book, is happening through culture and through these four individuals wanting to reconnect their Chinese heritage through food. I wonder if your children will circle back to that understanding of ingredients as, as an additional understanding of culture and place. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we... We spent so much time outside. They had a very place-based childhood, if you will. And I, I always associate place with a sense of belonging, mm -hmm. especially in a time in our world, in our culture, where I think that we have a deficit. Many people experience a deficit of belonging. And, and so knowing where you live and feeling a commitment to it, to me, is kind of this piece about a horizon, you know, of being more in connection with each other and also in connection with land that allows us to live here. Yeah, commitment is a good way to look at that, I think. So 
I suppose we should probably talk about the recipe, which is pork, mushroom, and cabbage dumplings. We chose this recipe because this episode is coming out two days before Chinese New Year, of which dumplings are traditionally served, I believe, because they look like little coin purses. And so they're meant to they're meant to sort of promote prosperity. And um, Chinese New Year is has a lot of symbolism, a lot of things that you do, um, traditions surrounding it are uh, kind of steeped in symbolism. And I think that that's why they serve dumplings because they look like little coin purses. Have you ever made dumplings before? No. <laughs> How did it go? It was great. It yeah. took a long time, but it was sort of paralleling with this book is there ended up, our whole family ended up being in the kitchen helping make them. Um, but it it was hours of work yeah. because we made the the dumpling skins or wrappers, yeah. yeah, from scratch. And so that took time rolling them all out and they were delicious. And that's all we ate because by yeah. the time we got done, <laughs> like the other plans that I had, just, you know, it was just happen. like we needed to sit down and eat. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did you make the full quantity? We did. So we had, we had, a, we had over 70 dumplings. Wow. Yeah, I did not make the whole one. Um, I think I I made, well, I only made 12 and then the rest of the filling. And I also made the um, dough for the wrappers in part because I think I couldn't find any, I couldn't find any in grocery stores, any dumpling wrappers in grocery stores. Um, I think you probably made them to avoid gluten. Yeah, I used an alternative yeah. flour. Yeah, which is a great option. There's a lot of substitutions in this. I think this recipe is quite adaptable. I thought it was really fun. I thought the folding was frustrating, but I started to get a hang of it. Um, but they certainly don't look like the pictures in the book. Did you pan fry yours? We ended up boiling them just because of the time that would have taken oh, to Because you had so fry. many. Yeah, which was good. You know, they had kind of a sticky quality to mm -hmm. them. And we had a favorite Chinese restaurant growing up, and that was one of dumplings were something that I always got. Mm -hmm. And they had that kind of sticky quality to them. Yeah. And so my mom actually joined us for, for dinner, and so we remembered that and Aww. the dipping sauce. And Great. so that, too, was a bit of a memory for us. Yeah. Yeah. So I should say the what's going to be included in our kits, for those of you that want to try your hand at making these dumplings, we will be including white pepper, toasted sesame oil, and Chinese soy sauce. So a funny thing about the Chinese soy sauce, in the book it says it calls for light soy sauce, which in my culinary ingredient understanding, which is not very Chinese, I don't make Chinese food very often, that says to me low-sodium Japanese soy sauce. <laughs> But then I looked in the ingredients and it specifically says that that's not what that means. It is a type of Chinese soy sauce. I haven't tried the Chinese soy sauce. I used regular soy sauce and it tasted great. So you're going to get Chinese soy sauce. You're going to get the actual ingredient that it calls for in the kits. But I think it tasted great with regular with Japanese soy sauce as well. Did you use Japanese I used, soy sauce. I didn't know that either yeah. until you shared that with me. I would be curious to do a taste test to yeah. see what the difference is. Yeah. Because it's a fermented product. So yeah. I wonder if there's a difference in ferment. Well, I'm always curious about a process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I don't know. We you can certainly taste some. Yeah. <laughs> um so yeah, those recipe kits will be ready for you to pick up on February 8th. Related to this recipe, some substitutions. 
there's some interesting ingredients that I'm sure you could get with a little bit of planning. Um, some of them you might have to get online, I found. I tried to find Shoujing wine, or Shoujing wine, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is called for in the recipe, and I couldn't find it at any grocery stores near me. And so I just used a cooking sherry. Did you use a substitution for that ingredient? I used just, we had a bottle of white wine that I used for cooking, and so I just used that. Yeah, yeah. and I think, I bet... Again, I wonder if that there's a little bit in the front of this book that says, you know, if the flavor isn't quite right or like there's something missing in your Chinese food, it might be shoujing wine. So maybe that would have really put it over the edge, but cooking sherry and white wine seem to work fine for me. I also don't eat meat. So instead of pork, I, I kind of fudged. I kind of fudged things. I did a little bit of this recipe and a little bit of a recipe from their blog, which uses carrots, basically the same ingredients except shredded carrots instead of pork. And it was a really good vegetarian dumpling. And so I think the recipe is really adaptable. And their blog has so many great ingredients and ideas and substitutions. And even in the book, there are little QR codes that lead to their blog videos of how to fold the dumplings. Yeah, I liked those. Yeah. And did your non-wheat-based wrappers work out? Yeah. So we, I actually used a flour called einkorn, which is the only non-hybridized wheat. So it's kind of the original wheat. And so its gluten structure is different and oh. doesn't give um, a lot of people trouble. Interesting. Um, and so, But it is technically very, gluten. It, it is gluten, but it has a it is it is structured differently and it's it's actually a super difficult flour to work with oh. and um, super duper sticky and messy and so it takes more work and patience yeah. um but it's delicious yeah. and uh, and it actually works better in applications like this than it does in bread baking oh, okay. um, because it's a it's a this is a dry dough yeah and so that sticky aspect of it, it you know is is something that that kind of gets tamed um, yeah. in the process yeah yeah I, when I was rolling out my little dumplings, admit to, I, I make corn tortillas all the time. And I was like, I wonder if I can use a corn or use a tortilla press instead yeah. of, and you can't because it shrinks back. And it's not like corn. Masa has no structure to sink yeah. back, um, which of course, like flour tortillas, you also have to roll out. So I'd, I was just hopeful that it would do I was, it faster. <laughs> I was thinking about doing that, yeah. but I, I didn't. I actually took one of my kids' cylindrical blocks from when they were little. Yeah. And so it was maybe three or four inches long. And I just used that yeah. to, to roll it out. They yeah. have those. Um, I saw some images or, or maybe it was the video of a Chinese rolling pin, dumpling rolling pin, which is very thin. Yeah. That looked really cute and fun to use, but yeah. I just use a, a normal one. Would you make dumplings again, knowing yes. how long it takes and everything? I would. And and I think the reason I would was because everybody in the family was so enthusiastically yeah. joined in. Yeah. And so, I mean, we were, you know, back to back in the kitchen. I think, let's see, one, two, three, four. The, yeah, there were five of us, <laughs> wow, yeah. five of us that were in the kitchen and it was joyful yeah. and, and it was just, it was just two of us initially, but then as it got along, we had to be rolling, we had to be stuffing, mm -hmm. we had to be folding and we had to be boiling. And yeah. so it, we really needed everybody. And I thought at that time, when I first started, I thought, oh, this would probably be a bunch of, you know, 
grandmas and their daughters mm-hmm. in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, and I was in there with my three sons and my husband and my and mom. Their grandma, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it's nice to see both the, the men and women in our yeah. family in the kitchen together. Like that was yeah. really nice. Yeah. That's something that I really appreciate about Chinese cuisine, the communal eating aspect mm-hmm. of it. It's not as common to assume that everything will be shared mm-hmm. in our culture of eating or in my culture of eating. And in Chinese cooking, it's somewhat of an assumption that food that is on the table is for everyone. And I think that makes you think about other people and does everyone have enough? And mm-hmm. am I taking too much of when Bryn doesn't have any noodles and I could tell she really wants more or whatever, as opposed to our kind of single dish, I only need to think about mm-hmm. what I'm eating. Um, and of course that probably has implications beyond just the dinner table. So last question before we kind of move on to talking about Chinese New Year. I want to know, Bryn, which family member you think that you mm. are in the kitchen? So there's four family members, Sarah, Caitlin, Bill, and Judy. Bill and Judy are the parents. Sarah is the older daughter. Caitlin's the younger daughter. Do you have a sense of who you might be in the kitchen? I really relate to Judy because mm-hmm. she it seemed to me that she really wants to honor the integrity of a recipe. I do like going back and really understanding how was something made and using the slower processes that people used to develop flavor and, um, you know, using the simple ingredients. However, I am totally not a recipe follower at all. And so I think it was Caitlin that says that she wings it all the time. And so I think a lot of the, the food that I cook is, food of economy. Mm -hmm. And so there probably weren't formal recipes for them. Yeah. So it's a combination of both, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, you'll be happy to hear that I was watching um, in an interview with the family and Caitlin says that she thinks that she gets her looseness from Judy. So there is some deep interest in a kind of traditional ways of making things in the process. And I think also Judy might be a little looser than than she comes across maybe. And maybe it's like when you honor tradition, really, you're you're making do with what you have, yeah, right? Yeah. Because because that's essentially, you know, traditions didn't have grocery stores totally. filled with all the ingredients. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we we put these out to be coinciding with Chinese New Year, which is on February 10th, and Chinese New Year follows the, it's the second new moon after the winter solstice, which this year is the February, it's February 10th, which is why it's also called Lunar New Year. A lot of cultures other than um, Chinese cultures celebrate Lunar New Year. Have you ever done any Lunar New Year celebrations or I anything haven't. like that? I haven't. I haven't at all. And I've done almost no Chinese cooking either. So this was, this is really joyful. Yeah. Chinese New Year is really, really old, kind of steeped in myth. And, but one of the myths that is most prevalent is of uh, a mythical beast, Neon, who would every year on New Year's Eve would come and destroy things, kill people and destroy towns and stuff. Um, but Neon was also uh, kind of a scaredy cat and was afraid of loud noises and r- the color red. And so the myth of Chinese New Year is the people would put out offerings to Neon so he wouldn't destroy their town and would also 
light bamboo on fire, which would crackle, which then turned into firecrackers, which then turned into like fireworks. And that's why there's all kinds of red at Chinese New Year because neon is like afraid of red. So it's a way of warding off this beast that's going to tear apart your town. So that's kind of the lingering myth of Chinese New Year. And I love the idea of crackling bamboo as like a loud noise to scare away this beast. But now there's all kinds of traditions in Chinese New Year. Like one of the ones that I really love and might do this year is the week leading up to Chinese New Year, ending on the 9th, not doing anything on the 10th. You're supposed to clean every aspect of your house, mm -hmm. really get in the corners and like rid your house of the previous year. And then on the 10th, you're starting with like a mm. fresh new space. I don't know. It sounds like a nice tradition. Yeah. So there's a few New Year uh, celebrations happening in our area, two in Fort Collins and then one big one in Denver. There's a free Lunar New Year celebration on Saturday, February 10th at the Lincoln Center in Fort Collins, and that will have dancers, um, performers. Uh, and then there is a Chinese New Year at Hunan in Fort Collins, which is coordinated by the Global Village Museum. That one is a meal and it's $50 for a three course meal, but I think you can still get reservations for that. And then the big one is the 20th Animal Colorado Chinese New Year celebration, which is at uh, George Washington High School in Denver. And that's $25, but there's all kinds of performances and food. Um, and that's from 10.30 to 3.30 on February 10th. So, okay, the last question, Bryn, that we always ask our podcast participants is are you reading watching enjoying anything at the moment that is maybe not about food or cooking it could be it could be but yeah I well I got um as a teen librarian um I've gotten sort of been kind of gotten into graphic novels and oh. so I've heard from so many people a really important graphic novel is Persepolis oh yeah um and so I finally read that, and you know, it's a story of an Iranian girl. That just sort of inspired me to just continue understanding kind of culture in the um, Middle East, especially as there's so much conflict over there. And so then I knew Geraldine Brooks is an author that's done a lot of historical fiction, which is a genre that I love. But she um, was a Washington Post correspondent for a number of years stationed in I think Saudi Arabia. So she wrote a book called Nine Parts of Desire, which was based upon her relationships with the women mm -hmm. that she didn't necessarily work with, but that she encountered in her work because it was, it was quite significant to be a woman that was working as a journalist at that time. Did she write um, Horse? Yes. Did you which read I've that? I've not read that, no. I haven't read it either, but it is well... Uh, reserved so are, it's well regarded well yeah. regarded have you read any of her other books I haven't yeah I, what I else is, what another um title? A Year of Wonders is um written during the plague it's a story of a young girl so that's actually cataloged as young adults mm. in a lot of places just because of the protagonist there's also one called Caleb's Crossings and I think the one that's got a really interesting twist to it is called March and it's the story of the father from Little Women 
So she creates a whole book that's about his story. Um, And it's really a story of justice. I highly recommend her as an author. Yeah. What about you? (laughs) I was going to not say. Um, No, I, I, I have a smart, I always have a smart book and a dumb book. I shouldn't say that, but it's true. My smart book, quote unquote smart book, is I'm rereading uh, Gilead by Marilyn Robinson for my book group, uh, which uh, is an epistolary novel told from the point of view of a priest. And she's wonderful. Marilyn Robinson's wonderful. So I'm happy to be reading that. And then my dumb book is the like bajillionth Julia Quinn a uh, romance novel that I've read a million billion times. So uh, actually, I haven't re- read this one before, but I've read basically everything else she's written. Um, and they're all the exact same. <laughs> you know, they're just like the same plot. There's basically. something so good about I know, familiarity, yeah, though, exactly. right? So uh, that's what I most recently read last night was that book. So that's why I was being coy and was going to just issue it but yeah and I don't normally read like all serious stuff like that yeah. but I'm just happened to be in a patch where that's you know, great yeah well thanks Bryn yeah, for thank joining you me for welcoming me yeah super um, fun and we're gonna be talking next month about pie for pie day with a special guest so join us next month as well and we'll be talking again soon awesome thanks so much yeah. bye Thank you for listening to this episode of the Loveland Libcast. If you'd like to contact us about the podcast, please reach out to Daniel at daniel.tate at cityofloveland.org. That's D-A-N-I-E-L dot T-A-T-E at cityofloveland.org. See you next time.